3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Take a look out at the bay and you'll see a lineup of container ships waiting to dock in Oakland. But that's nothing compared to the dozens of ships waiting along the Southern California coast. The most important trade routes in the world from Asia to California cannot keep up with the demand for imported stuff in the U.S. Companies built finely tuned operations based on the assumption of just-in-time shipping but the pandemic has kinked the supply chains, leading to long backups, odd shortages and a reevaluation of global systems. We'll be talking logistics, the circulation of stuff and whether this is really how we want our economy to work. That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Anyone who knows me knows that I may love logistics too much. Containers, dock workers, ship captains, distant manufacturers, the warehouses close to the shore and far inland, the poor drayage truckers. Nothing gets to the heart of how modern capitalism really works faster than looking at how stuff moves from some factory in Asia to some aisle of Target. According to the Journal of Commerce, the top five importers by volume, that's Walmart, Target, Home Depot, Lowe's, and... Ashley Furniture, brought in more than 2.7 million 20-foot containers worth of stuff last year. And that's just a tenth of the total. So much, almost everything in one way or another, is dependent on shipping. And for years, it didn't cost very much. And the flow back and forth across the Pacific was smooth. But then the pandemic hit. Everything went haywire all over the supply networks, COVID hobbled factories in Vietnam can't make enough sweatshirts. There aren't enough spots on the docks. Warehouse workers are in short supply. Truckers can't be found. Even the actual steel containers, the boxes, can be hard to procure. The previously routine operation of getting something made elsewhere and shipped to a warehouse in the U.S. has suddenly become an ordeal. And that is why some people are saying you should buy your Christmas presents now. So today... We're going to untangle how the global system works and all the little ways it's affecting people's lives here in the Bay Area. Joining us are Jennifer Smith, a reporter with The Wall Street Journal who covers logistics and supply chains for the newspaper. Welcome to the show, Jennifer.
5: Thanks for having me, Alexis.
3: We also have Mario Cordero, the executive director of the Port of Long Beach. Welcome. Thank you. And we have John McLaurin, the president of the Pacific Merchant Shipping Association, which is a trade group representing terminal operators and shippers and focusing on global trade. Welcome, John.
6: Good morning, Alexis.
3: So, Jennifer, let's start with you. People may have heard about these ships stacking up outside ports in California. And so just to set the table for us at a high level, what economic forces are causing the problems right now?
5: Well, I'll try and avoid using the phrase, the perfect storm, because it gets thrown about (laughs) a lot Uh, with this. Basically, since the pandemic hit back in early 2020, there's been a cascade of supply chain disruptions and demand shocks, miscalculations, and issues with shipping and labor capacity. And at the same time, here in the US, you had consumer demand that actually held up pretty strongly, despite all of the turmoil during the pandemic. So that's all added up to this flood of imports heading for the main U.S. gateway for Asian trade, which is the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And that all those boxes are stacking up. There's not enough labor or capacity in various ways to move it on out, as, as you said. So that's that's sort of where we're at right now.
3: Yeah. John, you know, it's not really just about the ports, right? They're sort of every link is sort of experiencing a lot of stress in the supply chain right now, right?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, in uh, August of last year, um, I participated in a in a discussion with the ports of L.A. and Long Beach and others in the supply chain. And the problem at that time was described as the following um, by a person who moves goods in that when they're, they've got product in China, but they can't get a box. When they get a box, they can't get a ship. When they get a ship, they can't get a berth. When they get a berth, they can't get a truck. When they get a truck, they can't get a chassis. And when they get a chassis, they can't find a warehouse to take it to. Yeah.
3: I mean, what are retailers kind of doing to combat these problems? Are they increasing their inventory levels, Jennifer?
5: Well, Part of what retailers are doing, maybe adding to the problem in the short term, because of all these delays, some retailers, including Walmart and Costco, Home Depot, the ones with the deepest pockets, they're trying to get, circumvent the bottlenecks. They're, some are chartering ships to help move goods. They're laying in extra inventory. But of course, if they're moving in extra inventory, that's gonna end up piling up at the ports in, in one fashion or another, uh, no matter where it ends up landing. And of course, the Southern California... Ports are where a lot of these things do go, even though pe- some people are choosing alternate destinations for the goods. But so the, the strategy is in some ways adding to the strain yeah. currently.
3: Mario Cordero, executive director with the Port of Long Beach. When we look at this surge of imports, like what are we talking? Like how many extra ships want to dock in your port? Uh, how many extra containers like need to be unloaded?
2: Well, and you know, like Jennifer referenced, it it is a perfect storm, to use the cliche. So with regard to the vessels right now, uh, what we're seeing here is there's, uh, as of yesterday, 62 vessels at anchor waiting to get into the Port of Long Beach and the Port of Los Angeles. So the volume that we're talking about that's forecasted now for uh, 2021 is 20 million TEU containers here in Southern California that are going to come C-E-U in. means
3: 20-foot to... equivalent. I mean, most containers Correct. aren't 20 feet anymore, but they, this is sort of the standard measure in the industry.
2: Correct. So between Long Beach and Los Angeles, that's the number that is forecasted now, given the volume. Now, to put that into context, there is no other gateway in the United States that even approximates half that number. Right. So it gives you the significance of what this port gateway means to the United States. And as was referenced, you know, the gateway that closely approximates the most important trade route in the United States or for the United States, which is the trans-Pacific trade route with Asia. So,
3: you know, uh, just very recently, just a few years ago, uh, the Panama Canal was widened. And, you know, down, at least my understanding (laughs) was down in in Southern California, there was some worry that more traffic would go through the Panama Canal to the Gulf uh, and East Coast ports. Mario Cordero, why why aren't more places just taking that route instead of stacking up outside L.A. Long Beach?
2: Well, there 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 is uh, opportunities there with regard to the Panama Canal to go to the Gulf and East Coast. However, uh, here at the Port of Long Beach, we were ready. For the future 10 years ago, when we invested $4 billion in capital improvement projects to be big ship ready. And the answer to your question is because at the Panama Canal, if you have a 13,000, uh, 20,000 TU vessel, it's not going to go through the canal. So these larger vessels, what we call mega container vessels that are coming from Asia, are coming here to the West Coast, not through the Panama Canal. So we do have that advantage here given not only the volume that comes in here, the capacity that uh, we are able to, to move here. And last comment, keep in mind that during this uh, pandemic and this epic surge, uh, the men and women here at the docks have consistently worked day in day out moving this cargo since the spring of 2020 when we started experiencing the radical disruption in the supply chain given not only the trade war before that period, but of course now with the pandemic.
3: Jennifer, do you think that our current shipping system, which, as Mario noted, is so dependent on L.A. Long Beach, has it gotten too centralized?
5: Well, some people like to contrast what's happening at the biggest U.S. gateways with other ports in other parts of the world in Europe or Asia that operate on a 24-7 basis. Um, That can be a little bit complicated, particularly say the the Southern California port complex is surrounded by communities and they have had to deal a lot with truck traffic, uh, pollution from the vessels, and there's not unlimited space to expand. So there's that's that's only one of the sort of constraints. And Mario, I'm sure, could talk a little bit more about this. The Port of Long Beach is doing a, a pilot program extending some hours but there's not been a lot of traction in terms of drivers coming in the dead of night to pick up boxes as of yet, even though it's extended. So you, you have to have to have a 24 seven port would involve having all the other parts of the supply chain operate 24 seven. And that's a bit of an ask, particularly at a point uh, where blue collar labor is in short supply. So there's difficulty getting enough truck drivers, there's difficulty getting enough dock workers. Uh, to load and unload freight, uh, and when I say dock workers, I mean workers at the docks of loading docks of warehouses. So th- these are all factors that are making it more complicated. And you know, can you staff a warehouse to be open twenty four hours a day? Uh, it's not it's not as simple as just flipping a switch.
3: Yeah, I mean. Uh, John, as Jennifer was noting, it's really this kind of ecosystem of all these different companies that, you know, when each ship comes in, have to go to work. And, you know, I'm curious, you represent people who run tugboats and suppliers and things like that. Uh, What's going on with them? Because I can imagine that having way, way, way more ships uh, at anchor is also creating um, some issues in in that part of the,
0: the ecosystem
6: yeah um, everybody's hard at work um, I, I will reiterate I think what what Mario said earlier I, you know I think one of the untold stories is that in the pandemic in course of the pandemic we've moved an awful lot of freight under dangerous conditions where people just showing up at work were putting their their health and lives at risk and we've been moving record amounts of, of cargo the problem is, the entire supply chain is just swamped and we're, we're basically drowning in imports at this point in time. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. I mean, how much, can you give us a sense of how, what the increase in imports really looks like? But quantitatively.
6: Oh gosh. You know, I don't have the the figures off the top of my head. Mario's probably got a better handle on that than I do.
2: Yeah, sure. Mario, go ahead. Yeah. So for the first six months of 2021, here in uh, at the port of Long Beach in Southern California, we had a 30% increase mm. in container movement here. Now, keep in mind, the first half of 2020 was was disaster because the wa- the world came to a halt with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic. But going forward, uh, you know, we also have to understand California is the fifth largest economy in the world, and one of the reasons we are with a 3.1 trillion dollar GDP is because of international trade. So this number of 20 million uh, just in Southern California, is not gonna get any less going forward, whether we're in crisis or not in a crisis. So I think what this is basically, and again, using another cliche, uh, cliche, crisis brings opportunities. There's an opportunity now for us to really seriously think of systemic changes that needs to happen in the supply chain. And as Jennifer referenced, it's not easy. It's going to take uh, everybody coming together and collaborating. But the good news is we're seeing that at this point.
3: We're talking about backups in the global supply chain with Jennifer Smith, a reporter with The Wall Street Journal, who covers logistics. John McLaurin, president of the Pacific Merchant Shipping Association, a not-for-profit trade association focused on global trade. And Mario Cordero, executive director of the Port of Long Beach. Mario, I know you've got to get back to work, so thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we Thank also you want for the he- Oh, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we also want to hear from you. How are you seeing these shipping problems pop up in your everyday life? Have, have you had to experience a long wait for a particular product? Give us a call now at 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about backups in the global supply chain with John McLaurin, president of the Pacific Merchant Shipping Association, which represents a lot of uh, terminal operators and shippers. Jennifer Smith, a reporter with The Wall Street Journal, who covers logistics. And we'd like to add Charmaine Chua, associate professor of global studies at UC Santa Barbara. She's also the author of Logistics Leviathan, Circulation Empire, and the Trans-Pacific Supply Chain. Welcome to the show, Charmaine.
7: Good to speak with you,
3: Alexis. Yeah, good to talk with you again. Um, So I know you've been listening. Do you think that COVID is pointing out anything that needs to change systemically about our global supply chain networks?
7: I absolutely do. So I think what COVID is revealing is vulnerabilities that long pre-existed COVID itself. Um, The global supply chain has been built at least since the 1970s on what has been known as lean manufacturing strategies. That is that typically involve minimizing the amount of inventory that's held in your global supply chains so that you are only delivered exactly what you need at the exact right time, um, as well as just-in-time delivery. And together, these have led to um, companies being able to Produce their goods at much lower costs. It's allowed companies to maximize their profits. But in the process, what it's really built is a supply chain that's incredibly brittle, even as it's incredibly flexible. And what that means is it's been stretched out so much that as soon as a a disruption happens in one point of it, it's really a kind of cascading game of whack-a-mole, as Jennifer and Mario and John had already pointed out.
3: Mm -hmm. And Jennifer, do you see companies really re- thinking this? I mean, this could be anything from, you know, reshoring in the U.S. their manufacturing or just like changing their uh, supply chain networks.
5: So companies are definitely taking a a hard look at supply chain networks right now. That doesn't mean that you're going to see a wholesale return of manufacturing of all sorts of products to the U.S. That's very expensive. We may not have enough labor or other know other resources to do that but it's this has really deepened a trend that was already happening as companies uh were taking steps to to try and diversify where they're making stuff uh for various reasons the cost of labor in china had been going up over the last couple of years so folks are already looking to spread stuff to other lower cost areas then when you have natural disasters pandemics that just really reinforces how folks need not just one or two suppliers but backups for their backups and that's something that that is being looked at pretty hard um and nearshoring is is also something that you can probably expect to see more of as folks maybe look to be a little less reliant solely on Asia. maybe they'll look for labor or factories in other parts of the world does that mean like central
3: america or or mexico yeah
5: right right you know where you already have uh you know the the auto industry uh, famously has, has has a lot of uh, their supply chains uh, are are sort of run in between the U.S. and Mexico, thread pretty strongly. And you might see you know apparel or some other industries locating in in other places in Central or South America if that seems to be a way to hedge against some of the disruptions. So you just don't have so much concentrated in one part of the world. Sure, I mean
3: you know the answer I think that people think to this problem is to like quote unquote like buy local like that just see it makes so much sense to people like oh well if I don't want to participate in these global supply chains I could just like buy local does that answer the does that actually fix the problems that you're seeing in the system
7: That's a great question, Alexis. I do find that most of us, when we think about how to solve this, we say, well, I'll just change my consumption patterns. I think we miss the forest for the trees if we think only about what we can do as individuals. The problem with the stretch and the reach of this global supply chain and its reliance on cheap labor is that even if that cheap labor moves from China to Mexico or other low-cost areas, what we need to center is the fact that the system of this maximization of profit, our reliance on cheap goods, um, will continue to exploit large swaths of the global south and large swaths of workers. So I think really the question needs to shift away from what does local or more conscious consumption, perhaps we might buy less plastic or we might you know buy less toys, um, that that really is only symptomatic of a much larger issue. And I think we need to both be thinking about the scale at which we have come to rely on massive consumption and a massive extraction and exploitation of nature. And we also need to think about the ways in which this global system just can't be entangled more. And finally, I think we also need to be thinking about collective solutions um, to thinking and rethinking our reliance on supply chains.
3: Uh, I'd like to add some colleagues into the show who I think are having uh, all kinds of thoughts about these uh, issues. Uh, Morgan from Sacramento, welcome to the show. Thank you. What are you, uh, what are you thinking about these issues, Morgan?
8: Um, so I would have to disagree with the statement that one customer shouldn't be thinking about buying local. Um, I changed my consumption habits over the past year and I exclusively buy USA-made items. And it is a challenge. Um, yeah. I agree that you know, one person, what does that really matter in, in this? But uh, in terms of it does make a difference and policies do need to change around that. And even from information of where is this item coming from? Um, we don't need kiwis or we don't need toilet paper coming from across the world. It can come from right here. And that' why the strip ports wouldn't be busy. You know, we have people who need work here. Uh, we can make the products here.
3: Hey, Morgan, what drove you to want to change your consumption habits like that and buy locally?
8: It was really the pandemic, seeing the local businesses hurt um, out of business while the Walmarts of the world, you know, that's where everybody shops. That doesn't bring anything back to our local community. It doesn't bring jobs, and I saw that firsthand. Um, my family's been doing it forever, and I you know, was Amazon's number one customer. Um, I changed that because I wanted to make a difference.
3: Yeah. Thanks for that. Sure, I mean, you know, um, one thing that Morgan mentioned, which I think is really interesting, is how difficult it actually is to know what's like sort of made in the USA, particularly because these supply chains are so big. So even if it's like assembled in the U.S., it may have components from elsewhere. Right.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate Morgan's point. I do think that, you know, one consumer making different choices makes a huge difference. But what I'm really pointing to is that we have to think about this collectively as a society, right? The idea that big businesses can ever localize is really tricky. It took China over 20 years to build a local base that supplies the vast majority of electrical components, chemicals, drug ingredients. The fact or the idea that we could only buy completely locally within the US, I think is not quite accurate. It's certainly true for a mass amount of consumption and commodity products, but it's not true for medical supplies, for touchscreens, for iPhones, so on and so forth. So unless you retreat to the forest, I think that we need to talk about um, the collective picture of what that global supply chain really looks like.
3: Yeah. Let's uh, bring in Molly from Half Moon Bay. Welcome to the show, Molly.
8: Hi, thanks so much.
3: Hi, tell us your story.
8: Um, So I work at the Bay Area's number one run specialty store, a runner's mind, and we've been told by different brand representatives that for the next six or seven months, um, it's just going to be slow to get different shoes into the store. And so we've in turn been telling customers, like, if you really like this shoe, you should buy two now because we're not sure when we're going to have your size back in stock.
3: Uh, Thank you for that. I've actually encountered this very problem myself. Um, John McLaurin, uh, president of Pacific Merchant Shipping Association. I want to know, you have a lot of visibility into the industry. What about you? Are, Are you stocking up on things? Are you thinking about changing the way that you're buying things in response to these supply chain problems?
6: Uh, well, Alexis, it's funny you, you mentioned that. I, I did go to a local hardware store to buy something this weekend, and they were completely out of stock. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and they didn't have any idea when it might be in. So, you know, I think this is a, an issue that's going to really affect, just touch, touch just about everybody's lives uh, here in this country. And, and quite frankly, it's an issue around the world as well.
3: Mm-hmm. And are you, you know, like, let's say we've got the, the holidays coming up. As someone who knows kind of what's happening, are you like, I'm going to buy presents now? Which I, I, mean, I have heard of some people doing that.
6: Uh, in our family, we believe in just-in-time delivery, so we're still <laughs> a ways off.
3: Got it. Got it. Um, let's uh, go to Alex in Oakland. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hello. Thank you. Hi. Go ahead.
4: Uh, yeah. So not too dissimilar from what you guys are saying. I am a hairstylist and there's been major disruptions in uh, distribution for us, anything from hair color to hairstyling. And what I've been seeing is that things will go out of stock and we're kind of desperate for it. So when it's back in stock, we buy it in mass so that we don't have that disruption in our providing our services again. Um, and so then it puts it back out of stock again um and we're just having this like cyclical cycle of up and down
3: so we're talking like combs or we're uh, like like even the really basic stuff of hair styling like clips or we're talking more like uh you know slightly more complex
4: yeah like pomades or hairspray to hair dye you know
3: wow that's so have you ever seen this happen before in your career
4: not not at this level. No, absolutely. I mean, and when we talk about basics, you know, there's very basic just brown hair color running out, and we're having to, to get really creative to color people's hair. <laughs>
3: <laughs> can't even imagine the desperation. Um, we're talking about backups in the global supply chain with Charmaine Chua. Uh, an associate professor of global studies at UC Santa Barbara, Jennifer Smith, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, reporter who covers logistics and supply chain, and John McLaurin, president of the Pacific Merchant Shipping Association. We want to hear from you. How are you seeing these shipping problems pop up in your everyday life? We've already heard about uh, running shoes and hair dye and stuff at the hardware store. Um, have you been unable to get an item that's normally available and it's now uh, backordered? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. we seven eight six. We're getting in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. And, of course, you can email your stories, your comments to forum at kqed.org. We want to add Jordan Holman to the conversation. Uh, Jordan is a reporter with Bloomberg News who covers the retail sector. Welcome to the show.
9: Thanks for having
3: me. So I know you've been working on stories about how retail is sort of responding. Um, and the first thing I want to get to is whether there's a difference between your kind of mom and pop retailer and how like sort of big uh, retailers are, are working on these problems.
9: For sure, so the large retailers, they have more levers that they can pull when it comes to trying to solve the issues with the supply chain, but they're not immune to it. Um, because it is a global supply chain, if there is a factory shut down in Vietnam, they have to be aware of that. Or if there's the port congestion on the East Coast, maybe they have more, or in the West Coast, maybe they have more resources to move it to the East Coast, some more Savannah. Um, but that's costly, and so some of the retailers, that's really hitting their bottom line. When it comes to mom and pop shops, they don't have as much um, options um, to try to solve those problems this holiday season.
3: So for somebody who just, you know, you're you're one business owner and you have like one box of stuff in China, they're kind of in the, the worst of all possible situations, yeah?
9: Yes. And I've heard from small business owners who said that they've been waiting for months, you know, to get an order of dolls. Um, and that is maybe one of their key items that they're going to sell compared to a larger retailer. That's just a small category for them. Yeah.
3: Um, Jordan, just uh, before we uh, uh, move on to some more calls, just want to ask, are there specific industries or you know products that seem like they're being hit particularly hard?
9: You know, when I talk to um, people in the industry about like which categories are most challenged, people will say it is across the board. But um, some things that have definitely stood out and especially when we think about key items for the holiday, toys, um, that's challenged. Uh, Specifically one retailer had mentioned, uh, they've had an issue getting light brights and tinker toys uh, over here. (laughs) And then um, we not, the <laughs> yeah, not the light brights. Yeah, not the light bright. Yeah. Disappointing uh, for children. But then for parents and adults, furniture has been a huge issue um, with couches. So maybe like your actual couch will come, but this it will be a separate box for the legs for the couch, um, which could be a week's long uh, issue. Bikes. Um, and then also, even if you can get items, they might be more expensive this year when you think about TVs or clothes. Um, so that's a concern as well.
3: Yeah. Well, and if you look at the, the list of the biggest importers, you'll notice there's actually a surprising amount of uh, furniture stores on it, in part because the stuff they import is so big. want to add uh, John from Berkeley into the conversation. Welcome to the show.
10: Uh, hi thanks thanks for taking my call um i I wish for me that that it that the elective uh gifts and presents and food and things like that were were the most important thing but I'm a contractor in the mm-hmm. East Bay and I'm getting uh my suppliers and vendors are telling me I can get materials in February or March mm-hmm. and that's just not sustainable, I think we'll probably have to close, uh, wow. and I've been in business for over fifty years., wow.
1: uh, so what kind of supplies are we just not talking
10: workable
3: yeah, have you ever
10: well, seen something uh, like this no i've never in in over fifty years, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, we went through a lumber uh well, market manipulation, I guess, is the most forgiving way to put it. Uh, where the price of a sheet of plywood went from twenty-five dollars to one hundred and five dollars, uh, nice. you know, over the course of a month or two, it's come back down. And there's supply, there's some supply on lumber, but when you talk about things like rigid insulation, um, polyisocyanurate insulation, which is very commonly used. Um, the chemicals that are in paints, for example, the ceramic coatings for granules on shingles, they're just not available. And so the production on these kinds of items, which are essential items, uh, fundamentally are pretty severely affected. And I don't know how you plan, uh, you know, a business, which is fairly intense in terms of scheduling when you're getting products that are delayed by two, three, four, five, six months, um, it started out where there were just limits on what you could get now it's that you just can't get
6: wow so john it's i'm so serious.
3: yeah i'm so sorry to hear that that's uh going on with your business and thanks for like just giving us that insight into some of those items you wouldn't you know we i think a lot of us heard about the plywood problems or experienced it ourselves trying to do simple things but those deeper uh components of what it is to, to do construction. I really, really uh, appreciate that. Um, I, Jennifer Smith, just wanted to to go to you on, one of the things that I think is, is coming out is that high-end goods or more expensive goods, people are willing to pay more for shipping. So some of these things, like rigid insulation, maybe the people who manufacture that stuff aren't actually willing to pay for the shipping, um, given that it's not a super high-value item.
5: I'm I couldn't say whether that is the case i do know that with higher value goods people that make things like washing machines are starting to emphasize more expensive models because they get a better profit margin and they're having to bear higher material and transport costs i will say that what the call your last caller said jibed with what we're hearing from a lot of folks in the building trades you know that it's not just plywood it's all these other things and and uh insulation is a big deal and people are looking to try and substitute materials when they can but it's tough and that can sometimes change building specs so that's of course happening when you're having a very hot housing market and even if you're not buying a home many people are trying to fix up their homes this is something that's been happening in the pandemic so i just wanted to to say to the contractor i i i hear you yet you sound that sounds like a microcosm of a lot of things that we're hearing um but it is alexis to your point you know, there is a battle for limited space on ships. So the Walmarts of this world are going to win out uh, over smaller companies that are moving less freight. And the ones that are willing to pay more to move freight are going to get priority.
3: Yeah. Luis writes some comments from listeners the supply chain maybe this is why trader joe's keeps not having pepper honestly it's possible (laughs) Um, sue writes this is an excellent time to change our current way of doing things and to slow the increase of climate change how does all this container movement contribute to carbon emissions and climate change let's slow it down only buy items we need and be patient to get items in months rather than days we're going to talk about that when we get back from the break i'm alexis madrigal this is forum stay tuned I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about backups in the global supply chain and possible changes to the system that brings you the everyday stuff of your life with Charmaine Chua, Assistant Professor of Global Studies at UC Santa Barbara. She's also the author of Logistics, Leviathan, Circulation, Empire, and the Trans-Pacific Supply Chain. Jennifer Smith, reporter with The Wall Street Journal who covers logistics and supply chain for the paper. John McLaurin, president of the Pacific Merchant Shipping Association, which represents marine terminals as well as shippers uh, and is a not-for-profit trade association focused on global trade. And we're also joined by Jordan Holman, a uh, reporter with Bloomberg News, who covers the retail sector. Um, Jordan, wanted to uh, ask you a quick question before we let you go. Ray, one of our listeners, writes, I believe people are profiting by creating shortages. Having worked in distribution, I know that withholding product from the market can help drive up prices. Recent example, toilet paper crisis, mostly caused by hoarding and withholding product from the market are you hearing anything from your retail sources about people who are like well this distributor is uh you know making a killing because uh, of these supply chain problems or retail stores that uh, expect to make more money because prices have gone up and supply is limited
9: I'm not personally hearing that. Um, I think one thing to consider is this supply chain um, challenge is happening right at the most crucial time for retailers. The fourth quarter, this holiday season, um, some retailers can bring in a quarter or a third of the revenue for the year. And so if they did that, that would be a very uh, delicate balance Um, Mm. because right now in the market, all that we're seeing is extreme consumer demand. People are willing to pay for things, but there might be a limit, and you don't, as a retailer, you don't want to push prices too high where people just withhold spending completely.
3: Yeah.
9: Um, so that that's a huge consideration that's being taken place right now.
3: Awesome. Thank you so much, Jordan Holman, retail reporter with Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us. Um, I'd like to uh, bring in Norman um, from Game, who wants to remind us of the multimodal nature of our uh, supply chain systems. Welcome to the show, Norman. Yes, hello. I
10: want to put in uh, a good word about freight trains. As a retired freight train engineer on long runs, very heavy trains between Oakland and uh, San Luis Obispo on their way to Los Angeles and Long Beach and then coming back from San Luis Obispo to Oakland, back and forth for many years. And uh, I'm surprised that your guests, as far as the uh, supply chain, have not mentioned the importance of the old freight train. Nope. Thank you.
3: Oh, Thank you so much, Norman. It is, a, it is an excellent point. And Jennifer Smith, let's talk about the importance of trains, particularly uh, coming out of L.A. Long Beach and to, you know, Point East.
5: Absolutely. And Norman, you're a man after my own heart. I hope you're reading our coverage. Uh, freight is indeed a, a big piece while it moves freight rail moves about around thirty percent of the goods domestically, most, about seventy percent moves by truck. But one of the one of the reasons that the ports of LA and Long Beach are a big deal is they have these rail connections so you can load, you can take boxes, unload them at the port, and put them right on rail tracks and move them out. Uh, A lot of freight moves by something called intermodal where you're moving much of a long journey by rail and then the other ends are being handled by truck. Sometimes that's slower than truck, but it can also be cheaper. And the issue with rail right now is that they're also having capacity constraints just, just as the truckers are. So, but it is indeed a really important part of, of getting goods from these gateways and distributing them throughout the country, getting them out to Chicago and, and to other points deeper into the U.S. That's so interesting.
3: Um, a listener tweets just in terms of one of these uh, small things. Um, I see the impact of the shortages daily in the electronics business. But this week, I'm trying to find urethane-based primer. For the painters who are starting to paint our kitchen who knew urethane was on the shortage list we'd love to hear about shortages you're seeing or, or shipping problems that are popping up in your everyday life give us a call now at 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 you can get in touch on twitter and facebook too we're at kqed forum or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org um Charmaine chua we have a few different listeners who want to talk about environmental impacts and, and climate change and overconsumption by Americans, however they uh, end up defining that. And I want to give you a, a chance as someone who's thought a lot about these logistics systems, but from outside the industry, someone who's sort of been a critic of, of the way that these logistical systems have developed. Well, how would you like to see supply chains work, especially given the sort of labor issues involved in some countries, as well as, you know, the considerable uh, climate impacts um, from all this goods movement?
7: I love that question, Alexis, and I think that um, we need to not only talk about the climate impacts of goods movement itself, but also what that has enabled in the grand scale of the move of these global supply chains. So actually, when you read the supply news, part of what's really amazing is that you see food shortages in Nigeria and Africa, you see an energy crisis in China, you see floods and droughts affecting different kinds of supply. And so when we think about the supply chain industry, you know, shipping um, tech technically contributes only two to 3% right now, forecasted for something like 10% in 2050, but it's really the knock-on effects of what that has enabled at a grand scale. So my short answer to this question of what an ideal supply chain would look like is quite simple. It's just one that's not based on a maximization of profit and one that's not based on a reliance on cheap labor and cheap nature. Um, and it's one that um, is less invested in the idea of cheap goods for constant consumption. It's about really, I think, degrowth, which was a theory in the 1970s following French theorists like Andre Gorse, who asked whether it might be possible to imagine a world that is not reliant on the constant manufacture of constant goods for constant consumption.
3: Uh, Herman Daly, an American economist, always had like, a, a great question on this about, you know, that basically America's answer to uh, the poor in the United States was let them eat growth. Um, John That's McLaurin, right. I assume that you have uh, a quite different answer um, to this question about sort of what the ideal uh, supply chain uh, would look like or supply networks um, would look like, given that you represent a lot of uh, terminal operators and, and shippers. Do you think, though, that there also need to be systemic changes? over the next decade
6: well from a from an environmental standpoint uh i I would just add um that uh from a terminal standpoint the industry has been experimenting and 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 looking at a lot of different types of technologies and looking at uh, the use of hydrogen battery battery electric uh but it's clearly moving towards a zero emission um environment uh sooner rather than later and that's going to be throughout the supply chain as we see again the development of battery electric or hydrogen uh plus uh requirements that that are already on the books and and those that are being developed by by regulators in terms of the the supply chain itself um you know nobody thinks of the supply chain until there's a, a catastrophe and uh I think this provides us an opportunity to look at our supply chain and look at it in a holistic way and try to bring about some change. Um, you know, one thing that, that we've talked about my organization in the past is that, uh, currently we, we operate under a pull system to take cargo out of ports. And that's where somebody comes in and picks up the cargo and hauls it away, as opposed to a push system where we just push it off of the docks. Uh, look at, at, FedEx, look at UPS. Imagine if we as customers went to their facility to pick up our goods, as opposed to them coming out and and telling us when it's going to be delivered. So I think we need to have those kinds of debates uh, and really look at it in its totality in coming up with solutions.
3: That's really interesting. Don from Anaheim, California, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alexis. Yeah, thanks for calling. So my name is Donyal
10: Heydari. I work for Pacific Environment, which is an organization dedicated to serving communities of the Pacific Rim. And I'm really excited that you're talking about the climate impacts of the supply chain slowdown. Um, I'm based in Southern California near the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, which are experiencing up to 60 cargo container ships idling off the shores. Um, And on the theme of the excesses of profit maximization, these ships are emitting heavy fuel oil, which is one of the cheapest oils on the market, um, causing the communities of Wilmington, San Pedro, and West Long Beach um, to breathe in cancerous air pollutants, including nitrous oxide, sulfur oxide, and particulate matter. So. I'm really excited to bring up the public
3: health the local. Aspect. Yeah. Pollution impact. Yeah. I mean, you know, here here in the Bay Area, um, there's been groups like the West Oakland Environmental Impacts Project that uh, have been working on these issues. And a lot of it has been the, the diesel uh, here in in the Bay from trucks. Um, but there is, you know, as you as you reference, these ships burn this fuel. And that, the thing I've always the, the little nugget of information that I've always found so interesting about it is the the fuel is a tough fuel to burn. So they actually have to heat it up because at room temperature, it's like closer to asphalt than it is to the gasoline that you put uh, into your car. Jennifer Smith, um, when are you hearing about the environmental impacts from having so many cargo ships off the uh coast and do we know um if we've been able to measure that impact on air quality in the areas around the port communities of southern california
5: so that's not something that i myself have reported on but i did hear uh from a resident in in that area after we had a story about what's happening there uh indicating that they believe uh, emissions are up because of this flotilla that's that's anchored off off the coast there and and to the point about the the polluting that comes from big ships, container ships, there is a push to limit emissions that's happening uh, in, in the maritime industry, but there's divides between, sometimes it's divided by richer or poorer countries about how fast they wanna go, what types of fuel they wanna switch to. These discussions are, are taking place, but it, is, it has been contentious and I, I think Even as recently as this year, I think John Kerry, the U.S. climate envoy, was was hoping that the industry would speed up their progress uh, to zero emissions. So that's its it's goal. It's a target. How quickly it actually happens remains to be seen.
3: Yeah. I also just want to say that, you know, one of the complexities of like measuring the environmental impact here, too, is there are so many goods aboard these ships that I think. By most of the calculations I've seen, they have less of a climate impact than if we were to truck things around. Of course, depending on the kind of truck, how far the truck had to go, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, ship to rail has oftentimes been considered slightly better environmentally than um, using a a big semi truck to take one box at a time. So it's I just want to note the complexity there. Um, Noel uh, from Carmel by the Sea, welcome to the show. Thank you, thanks for having
11: me, Alexis. Um, yeah, I was just gonna say, along with the construction, we've had a huge increase in home purchases with families kind of moving out of big cities, given their opportunity to work remotely. So as the owner of an interior design firm, we're obviously seeing a huge demand for our services and for furniture, hmm. but because of supply chain issues, you know, ranging from shortages of foam that gets um, put into the seats of chairs and sofas um, to the increase in demand and challenges of logistics, we've just seen lead times for furniture, you know, go from a typical six to eight weeks to eight to ten months. Um, Whoa. so that's just been a challenge for our industry when we've you know when we're seeing this huge increase in demand just having a really hard time getting product. Um, and then what's your response our to that been? have to implement well it's just a lot of communication with our clients and um, and trying to, you know, and trying to let, let them know that we've got to be patient and, you know, we're doing the best that we can and that our vendors are doing the best they, that they can. Um, but we just have to be patient, um, which is, you know, which is a challenge when you don't have a sofa to sit on <laughs> or a dining <laughs> table to eat at. Um, but yeah, and we've also seen our vendors have to implement you know, mid-year price increases, which we don't typically see, but, that but, but because of the the shipping increases and in, in pricing. So we've, we've had to, you know, the vendors have passed those on to us, which in turn we've had to pass on to our clients. So yeah. there's just you know, been a lot of disruption.
3: Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Jennifer Smith, one thing we haven't talked about uh, is just really briefly, how much has the price of shipping a container from Asia to California gone up during this time?
5: I think the technical figure is a lot. Um, <laughs> I thought it was like 4x or something. It, yeah. it, I, I think it could be as much as that. I don't. I don't have those figures at, at my fingertips right now. But it has surged uh, pretty dramatically, and and because of all the factors that we've discussed here, um, and so that's that's a factor. I did want to bring up one thing that the most recent caller, when she was talking about shortages, I, I think to keep in mind is some of these shortages are not just because of transport, but they're because of COVID related factory shutdowns in places outside the US where there is a lot less access to vaccines. So this the global nature of supply chains means that Nike has trouble when there, some of their factories in Vietnam have to shut down because of COVID cases. So even though here in the US, we're focused on consumer demand and it would seem that as many US citizens who want a vaccine can get one, the pandemic is playing out very differently in other parts of the world. And because we have global supply chains, we, we need to remember that. And, and, and that's, that's one of the reasons for some of the, the difficulties in obtaining products that people are seeing. That's
3: such a good point. Um, Sharon from Oakland, uh, welcome to the show.
11: Hi. Um, I had a conversation with somebody who works at U.S. Customs, and she said that part of the problem is because the United States doesn't export a lot of items overseas. We are more of an importing country. The container ships that are coming to the United States are not being shipped back empty. So there's a so we are sitting on a bunch of empty container ships here, and then the container ships that are or the containers that are in the foreign ports are going up, you know, ten times what they were prior to. Um, this you know, supply chain disruption, the COVID and everything. Sure.
3: John McLaurin um, with the Pacific Merchant Shipping Association, maybe you could address this sort of about the balance of container supply and demand in the in the global system.
6: Uh, yeah. You know, depending on who you talk to, we either uh, don't ship enough empty containers uh, back uh, to the Far East or we ship too many. Um, I think it it's uh, a function. And every ship that departs California is leaving full. And by that, I mean, they're loaded with exports and empty containers uh, to the, to their maximum safety uh, limits. Uh, so, um, you know, boxes are moving back and forth. Um, our members are also purchasing more containers. But I, again, I think this goes to the issue of, this is a global problem, uh, uh, a global issue. Uh, Jennifer had it right in terms of some of the impacts of covid ports have been shut down factories shut down um you know i, I heard that shanghai's got 145 ships at anchor offshore uh, mm. as of last week so this isn't isolated just to california or to the united states this is really happening all over the world and creating problems and shortages everywhere
0: yeah
3: Um, Just wanted to list out a few of the different things uh, that people have not been able to find that they have commented. Uh, Toilet paper, paper towels, Diet Coke in 16-ounce bottles, uh, men's formal wear. We've also heard urethane. Um, We've heard rigid insulation. Um, This is, I I think, just a way of thinking about how interconnected the global economy is and how difficult it can be to keep all of these stores uh, supplied, given that there is, as Jennifer has noted, still a global pandemic. We've been talking about backups and shortages in the global supply chain with you, as well as with Jennifer Smith, a reporter with The Wall Street Journal who covers logistics and supply chain. Charmaine Chua, assistant professor of global studies at UC Santa Barbara, and John McLaurin, president of the Pacific Merchants Shipping Association, which represents marine terminals and is a not-for-profit trade association focused on global trade. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been Forum. Uh, stay tuned for another hour ahead with to Kim.